it's really hard to fathom before people have gone through it the level, the extent of the change in the dynamics of a relationship when the first child comes along. They say actually that marital satisfaction follows a bit of a a U-shaped curve. So we're up here until we have our first bub and then things kind of come down. But then the good news is they go back up again. And I think that just sort of reflects the level of stress and adjustment. Hello and welcome to Mum Life, a podcast for ambitious mums navigating the sweet and messy journey of motherhood. I'm Leonie Kidanor, and each week I will bring you conversations with mums and parenting experts about the highs and lows of motherhood and tips to make our lives that little bit easier. Hi everyone, welcome to the podcast. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Amber Dennehy, a friend of mine and a relationship therapist, about some of the challenges we experience as new parents in our relationships and how to best navigate these. But before we get into the conversation, I wanted to give you a quick update from my end. So I currently feel like as soon as I get the hang of being mum, another challenge presents itself. After I smugly informed you last week that although my entire family got sick, I wasn't sick, I was fortunate enough to finally get that bug. You can probably hear it in my sexy voice that I'm still on the mend. (laughs) And to be honest, that was probably the first time I've been this unwell with two children to look after. So my win and lesson for the week. And actually, before I get into that, I want to make it clear that (laughs) I find that if I'm talking about challenges that I'm experiencing, and look, to be fair, this is what this podcast is all about. Let's talk about the challenges. I want to make sure that it doesn't come out as though I'm whining and complaining. So I think there's that fine balance. So I think what I'll do is I'll explain what's going on in a bit of a positive sandwich way. And I'm not actually even sure that's called a positive sandwich. But basically, let's start with a positive before I get into my um, little qualm for this week. So my positive, my win is that although I was sick this week, I was fortunate on one particular day when I was just awful to have support with the kids. So, you know, that particular day, our nanny came in to look after Charlie and Noel was off at childcare. And it really did make me think as I lay in bed with cold and flu and hydroline that I really did think about those parents out there who don't have that support and who just have to push on. And, you know, for me, it was that having that day of reprieve. And, um, it just made me think far out. This parenting gig is a, (laughs) is a tough one. So now the one challenge that I experienced was basically the fact that I just am such a bad sick person and I do not have time to get sick. I mean, I feel like this is what every parent would say. I mean, we have enough on our plate as it is. And, you know, being a career woman as well, you know, obviously taking time off to look after our kids was one thing, but now sort of having to take further time off to to look after myself is just another thing. And although as a couple, we decided that it was a bit of an unspoken rule that if the kids do get sick, given I have more flexibility in my job, I'm more likely to be staying home to look after them. Although that was what was decided, when when it comes into practice, it's always that little bit more challenging to get your head around, particularly when you are two career people in in the couple. And so from my end, I find it a bit frustrating, you know, having to kind of keep stalling with my career or or my to-do lists. But, you know, I guess it's just something that over time, I don't know if it gets any easier, but I mean, this is certainly what I'm talking about in this conversation with Dr. Amber. It's around the fact that you can prepare yourself as parents, as a couple, and you can talk about how you want to navigate having children. But when, when it actually happens, it often can be a bit of a shock to the system. And this is where the tips and tricks from the experts really come into play. I guess I'm going to round that out with a positive. So I was actually reading a book called I Give My Marriage a Year by Holly Wainwright. I highly recommend that book, by the way. Loved it. And I'm just currently obsessed with how the dynamic of relationships change when children come into the mix. So there was this section of the book that resonated, which I highlighted, and I wanted to read it to you. So here it goes. There were no slow nights and lazy mornings. There was always the baby, heart-lifting, all-consuming, 
and all the things she needed daily, hourly, by the minute, filling the time that used to be theirs. He wouldn't change it, but he missed his wife. His wife that was not always preoccupied and tired. Josh was achingly aware that he wasn't as attuned to his daughter's needs as she was, and it did feel sometimes that he wasn't invited to be. And he knew his wife struggled with her new role. The one women were supposed to settle into effortlessly, but which, as far as he could see, required her to give up so many of the things that made her, her. She was home all the time. She'd never loved that. She didn't have time to run. She'd taken on all these household tasks that he didn't even know existed. And she clearly hated doing them. It felt like his new role was a supporting one. Yes, having babies changed everything, just like his mum had said. And so that leads us into our conversation today. As I mentioned, I'm speaking to Dr. Amber about common relationship stresses that we face as young parents. We talk a lot about the traditional type of relationship in this conversation, the man and woman. However, we recognize that relationships come in all shapes and sizes. And ultimately, the principles that we discuss absolutely apply equally to all kinds of relationships. Okay, let's cut to the episode. Hi, Amber. Welcome to Mum Life Podcast. So excited to have you here with us today. Well, thank you very much for having me, Leonie. I feel like this conversation, I'm so excited for it because honestly, the fact that you did your doctoral research in conflict patterns and attachment theory, but like conflict patterns, I'm like, I need all of your inner wisdom. (laughs) (laughs) Having a child really, as you, you know, as you would know as well, but it's a pressure cooker situation. And I feel like you go from being the couple who's, you know, you know, fancy free and footloose and, and, you know, there's the life challenges, but really all in all, yeah, you're well, you've slept well, you're feeling pretty good. And often your biggest challenge is, you know, what you're going to eat on a Saturday night. And then all of a sudden (laughs) it's like, you have this being that you have to look after and everything shifts. Um, so I'm really excited um, for, to get your opinions and your expertise on sort of how we navigate a couple of the challenges that um, I certainly have experienced myself and, and other other listeners um, and young mums have also experienced. So I'm excited to kick it off. Yeah, <laughs> let's get into it. Great. So look, first of all, I'm like literally like, where do I even start? <laughs> first of all, <laughs> Um, one thing I know that is a, is quite a big challenge for us, uh, young parents is that change in role and responsibilities. So effectively, even though, I mean, a lot of, I actually was seeing a psychologist throughout my pregnancy and one of the pieces of advice she provided me was really plan and think about how you want to parent and really plan and think about what your life will be like. So that Alish, when you are sleep deprived and all of those things, you have some sort of plan or idea as to how you're going to navigate, you know, having a little one. Um, That worked really well for me because I'm a planner. However, I feel like you can never really plan um, for and never really know exactly what you're, what you're getting yourself into. Um, with the roles and responsibility piece, I mean, we essentially knew that I was going to take time off and I was going to look after the little one. You know, Jules would be around for the first week or so, and then he would go to work and he would provide support when he was home from work. We knew that that was like what it was going to be. We had agreed everyone's happy, right? But then everyone's not happy. <laughs> when it actually happens. So, I mean, from my perspective, I'm sitting there going, you know what? I'm a career woman too. I love my job. I'd love to be at my job for, you know, half a day, a day, you know, um, or even a couple of days a week. And just to be able to have that reprieve and not feel like I'm constantly, you know, breastfeeding, changing nappies, et cetera. And then you see your partner going off to work and having that perceived freedom um, and being able to tap in and out. And often that can be really challenging, particularly for, you know, career women. So resentment builds and then, you know, you end up in a position where, you know, you may have gone weeks and months without speaking about that resentment and then it all blows up over, you know, who left the coffee cup out on the bench when it shouldn't have been left out, you know, like over little things, right? So I guess first and foremost, how do we best 
navigate that transition around the roles and the responsibilities and potentially learn how to better communicate so that we can avoid resentment building? Mm. I mean, just firstly, what, what you describe about, you know, the argument about something very, very small <laughs> with these seismic changes that are going on in the relationship is so widespread and, you know, really understandable. I think, um, you know, it's really hard to fathom before people have gone through it um, the level, the extent of the change in the dynamics of a relationship when the first child comes along. Um, they say actually that marriage, marital satisfaction follows a bit of a, a U-shaped curve. So we're up here until we have our first bub and then mm. things kind of come down. But then the good news is they go back up again. And I think that just sort of reflects the, um, the level of, of stress and adjustment. And I think, you know, for for the gender differences as well, um, because women often will undergo a much quicker identity shift um, when becoming a mother, and often the for the man, it's it can be a little bit slower. Uh, the attachment process can be a little bit slower, um, and so what we see is a couple who are used to functioning in this way, kind of you know, having to find this whole new normal where mum's often kind of changed quite a bit and dad's, you know, not really understanding why things aren't going the way that they were sometimes. So that's a really common pattern of conflict. And actually the research sort of suggests that um, the higher the level of emotional intimacy for the couple before going through the major adjustment of having the first child, uh, the easier it is to weather the storm. Um, And a lot of the theory behind that is really because it's easier to tap into one's partner's headspace. Um, You're less likely to what's called polarise into um, just kind of reacting in opposite directions to each other. You know, one person is sort of arguing X and the other one goes further with why just that process of going to opposite ends is is really common and can be really tricky um so yeah communication and a a solid foundation before entering um into parenthood is is a really important thing um I think also, you know, I'll, I'll probably repeat it a lot in this this discussion, but um, I think the level of perfectionism that we have in becoming parents, you know, um, I think for women in particular, we just have so many different roles and responsibilities, which is fantastic, you know, since the um, gender equality that started in the 1960s, you know, we can just take on so many different roles now. But with that, um, comes a lot of pressure and a lot of being pulled in different directions. And there's this idea that, you know, in ind- addition to being the, you know, achievement-oriented career woman, we also need to be the perfect mother and it needs to come naturally. And there's a lot of myths out there that will just sort of fall into it. Um, and so I think that perfectionism is really easy to get sucked into. And that's when anxiety is going to get high, we're going to get more reactive to our partner when they aren't necessarily on the same page. Um, and yeah, conflict just gets a lot more difficult in those, those sorts of setups. I think Mm, even just on that, what you're saying, um, I just think of sort of the, that alpha energy and often, you know, as females, we're in that work mode, you know, and with the trying to achieve and trying to be perfect, even at home, often, you know, it is harder to sink into that more feminine kind of energy and and be the mother, particularly Mm -hmm. when you have been so career focused or, you know, um, sort of an achiever in whatever it is that you've been doing prior to having children. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. I think the, I mean, I'll probably repeat this a lot, but I think Mm. the, um, the identity shift, the extent of that for a woman, um, is, is really, really significant. And the other thing that's often not talked about is that, um, you know, theory says that we start to experience more of our own childhood experiences when we become mothers ourselves. So it's really quite an onslaught, not just because of the sleep deprivation and, um, you know, all these new things we're learning, but um, 
because of what's the undercurrent, what's happening at a less conscious level, it's, it's a major, you know, transformation. Um, so I think coming into it, not underestimating how difficult that is and not expecting yourself to um, feel in control or, or, you know, on top of things as much as you would in your previous life is a really important um, thing to, to make room for. Yeah. Mm, oh, absolutely. So even when you have prepared as much as possible and for example you're clearer on your roles and responsibilities once baby comes Mm. I mean as I said that that whole thing I know that I just watch Jules walk out the door and I'd be like damn you (laughs) (laughs) like I love our child but like I want to just like sit on a train for like 20 minutes and listen to a podcast and stare out the window and like as mum you barely clock off like so how do we, I don't know, even begin to wrap our heads around that and try to avoid, you know, again, that producing further conflict within our relationship? Yeah, I think communication is really, really important on that front, you know, just communicating what we're finding difficult and those feelings of envy, you know, having those conversations with your partner. Um, Because I think there's a bit of a myth out there for a lot of men that women automatically switch on this kind of mothering instinct, they perhaps might not otherwise be aware of the struggle um, and the level of that struggle. Um, And so it is really even things that you think should be obvious, it is really, really important to be very on the table with what you're experiencing internally. And you might also be surprised with the response that you get from your partner if they can be equally on the table with you, you know, for, for a lot of women, they, you know, like you described, they look at their partner going to work and they think that freedom, you're, you haven't had to change at all. I've had this big adjustment to my life and nothing I was is the same, but you can just go on to work. But uh, for them, they might uh, experience things in a slightly different way in terms of, I think a lot of men maybe struggle a little bit from an increase in this notion of the breadwinner pressure and, um, you know, the stakes being higher at work. So I think if both members of the couple can be really on the table about what they're experiencing, um, there there is more of an opportunity to not feel as resentful because often what comes out is that it's difficult for, for both parties and maybe there are some solutions that can come up from such a frank discussion. Um On the discussion front, so, you know, the reality of having a little one often means that you, you know, even when they do come home from work, for example, partner comes home from work, you're there, you know, dishrevels, you know, (laughs) you just got bubs to sleep and you're like, you know what, I don't know how long this is going to last for. I need to just chill. I'm going to go have a shower. I might just sit in front of the TV and zone out. The last thing I really feel like doing is having an authentic, deep and meaningful conversation with someone (laughs) when I can't even articulate like, you know, how I'm feeling about, you know, the very basic things, let alone those very emotive kind of um, experiences that we're having internally. So I guess, you know, again, for young parents, is there a way in which we could try and make room for those conversations? Because as you said, they're imperative. And if you're not having them, it really will start spiraling. Yeah. Things build up, don't they? Um, Absolutely. I think that's a really good point that you raised because, you know, practically the level of demand and, you know, lack of time, just the two of you as a couple to talk, depending on your living situation. You know, if you're living in, say, a smaller apartment, for example, maybe there's not the opportunity to have a lot of talk after bub goes down, you know, without fear of waking them. So it is about carving out that time. And sometimes we have to sort of schedule things in our mind for, say, the weekend or, um, you know, obviously if you can be lucky enough to have family support and can have some time together, just the two of you, that's golden. Um, Yeah, because I think what a lot of people don't realise is that um, relationships don't come naturally and they require, you know, a lot of investment and a lot of time and work. And just because you're married or you might have been together for decades, that doesn't change. Um, in fact, patterns get more insidious. So in some ways, you know, taking the temperature of the relationship and having, you know, a more in-depth discussion that you, than you might on a day-to-day level is, is even more important the longer you've been together. 
And I think it's a valid point there about potentially even scheduling in whether, you know, depending on what your schedules are like, whether it's, as you said, just like a mental check. Okay. Well, when we go for our walk on a Saturday morning, I'm going to use that opportunity while Bubs is in the pram. And, you know, for us to have that discussion, for example, um, because I think the benefit as, as you were saying about that scheduling piece is that you're actually, you know, gearing up for the conversation versus trying to have it on the fly, thinking you've got three minutes before baby's waking up. And often that's when we become more emotional. Our inner child comes out. We start feeling (laughs) needy. We still, you know, and it's, you know, and it all comes out wrong. And then you're left with this, you know, debacle of a situation. And then Bubs does wake up and you're just like, kill me. Like, you know, so um, I think there is, is, it's very valid what you're saying about potentially, yeah, scheduling it in and knowing that this is the time we're really going to discuss the things that are important for our relationship. Yeah. And it often soothes, you know, for some partners who might be particularly afraid of conflict, sometimes just that scheduling, uh, putting a container around it, I guess, can, can help those partners to feel um, less ambushed, I guess. Um, which can be a really useful thing. I, I remember speaking to one couple once who used the technique of, um, you know, one partner, if they had something they wanted to discuss, would tell them or sort of conflict avoidant partner to go put the kettle on and that was kind of the sign to, you know, that we're going to have a chat and you yeah. can buy some time while making tea, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, you've got to make it your own but, um yeah, just really carving out that time and not thinking, oh, it's too petty or we don't have time to discuss that. So I'll just sweep it under the rug because when you sweep it under the rug, it just gets bigger and it feels harder to talk about over time. So even if you think it's too little a thing, it's it's never too little if it's bothering you, you know. Do you have any exa- like an example that comes to mind? And again, um, obviously mindful of privacy when it comes to clients, but even if you were to just do a more of a generic example um, of how you've seen this piece kind of, you know, play out, for example, you know, potentially new couple, sorry, new parents um, and, you know, a difficulty and then potentially how they overcame it just to sort of bring to life what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, I guess I could combine a few different examples to mm, ensure that confidentiality is sort of maintained. But, um, you know, one of the most common patterns that we see, particularly around the birth of the first child, I think, is um, what's called an over-functioning, under-functioning pattern between couples. So that's like a lot of couple dynamics where each partner kind of falls into a role, if you like, Um one partner plays the role of the overfunctioner who kind of takes charge and organizes and does a lot. And the other partner kind of waits for direction um, and maybe doesn't initiate quite so much. Um, and for the person in the overfunctioner role, they're often um they get a sense of esteem because they're kind of in charge and they're organizing everything. Um but they also feel a little bit unsupported and overwhelmed at times with no way to really express that. Um, whereas the partner who's in the underfunctioning role can often feel um, a little bit like their voice isn't heard, um, they don't have any input, um, they can have a decrease in esteem from that. Um, but this is a really common pattern that a lot of couples can get into. And more often than not, uh, the woman, I think, can fall into that over-functioning role around the child rearing, particularly breastfeeding and, um, you know, just having more time at home. It's like the woman becomes the expert on the child and the man's just waiting to be told what he should do. Um, And that can be a bit of an insidious uh, pattern, I think, because uh, one of the most powerful things is that the more one person over functions, the more they invite the other person to do less and vice versa. Um, so we can often feel like it's one's partner who's putting us in this position and not realise that it's actually a, you know, mutually um, perpetuating kind of cycle. Um, and I guess the most important thing in any of those polarised positions is um to make the roles less rigid. So if the person who's usually over-functioning can show those vulnerable feelings and can show that, yeah, I'm really struggling and I don't actually know what I'm doing and I, you know, um, I actually need your help with X, Y, Z, 
um, what we'll find is that often the other partner can step up and there's a bit more flexibility and things don't get so entrenched. Um, I think that's a really important um, dynamic to think about, particularly if we're going into motherhood with a bit of perfectionism and this idea that we should know how to do it all and it should come naturally and attachment should come naturally and we should still be able to be the wife and, you know, all these expectations that I think get perpetuated with nappies, commercials and whatnot. Yeah. <laughs> Instagram and all of yeah. that. Instagram's <laughs> probably worse than Huggies. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, yeah. but, yeah, I think um, just kind of recognising when um, you're always in the organiser role and always doing the dictating of how things are going to work around the children is something I think a lot of women can be aware of and just allow um, husband to step in even if, you know, you don't necessarily agree with the way they're doing something, maybe it's kind of worth just allowing them to kind of um, come in a little bit more uh, to ease up mm, I that think cycle. That's a big one, isn't it? Even if they don't do it nearly as quickly as you do <laughs> or, you know, they don't do it nearly as efficiently, it's kind yeah. of going, well, we agreed that, okay, you would do washing on Saturdays. So mm-hmm. if that takes you half an hour to do it, that's your task and yeah. I'm not going to butt in. <laughs> like, yeah. I've, got a, I've got a friend who provided that example where she just said the hardest thing for me was to just grit my teeth, watch him do what we agreed that he would do and not say anything because she said it would be unfair to him. He has met us having an agreement that this is your task, this is my task. It's not fair for me to step in and say, well, come on, mate, hurry up. Yeah. It demasculates a bit as well and then they feel a bit, you know. Absolutely. Uh, Mm. Just on the the friend anecdotes, I once Mm. um, had a friend who was describing this pattern to me and um, she was talking about leaving her her partner's underwear to pile up in the corner until he ran out <laughs> because he didn't put it in the washing basket. <laughs> so much willpower. Did that work? It yeah. did. It did. <laughs> but could you do it? You know? <laughs> that is a fair point. Yeah. So there's lots of ideas yeah. out there. Yeah. But I guess it's it's one thing for us to say, you know, rationally this makes sense and mm. and if we can keep it in mind, we should be able to do it. But there's always the unconscious element, you know, particularly when you're sleep deprived and feeling reactive. I think um, helplessness is probably a really strong emotion that a lot of new mums experience, not only with having a baby but with the process of labour and pregnancy and I think one of the really common ways that we unconsciously try and remedy that emotion of helplessness is to overfunction, to kind of do more, get more organised, clean the house more, you know. Um, so these things can be really insidious and they're coping strategies. So it's easy for us to sit here and say, yeah, well, obviously we shouldn't do that, but it's not always easy to action in practice. And uh, so you do have to kind of be kind to yourself, I guess, and just observe what's happening. Try mm, and your pot- best to intervene. <laughs> well, that's the thing. And it's that awareness piece. I mean, they always say, don't they? Like if at least the first step is just being aware of what you're doing and then hopefully change comes. Yeah, absolutely. That knowing is half the battle. I think knowing is probably two thirds, three quarters of the battle. <laughs> mm, um, yeah. But it, it doesn't always lead directly to behavioural change. And sometimes just knowing can can help. I remember when I was first doing my um, specific training in couples therapy and um, there was this notion of they called like a systemic viewpoint, which basically means that it's not one person doing something to the other partner. It's both partners engaged in a dance and they're influencing each other and the more partner A does one thing, the more they invite partner B to do the other. And I remember feeling quite outraged that it wasn't all my partner's fault when we had not. <laughs> it's a real perceptual shift. Um, but I think, you know, this is something to be really aware of in times of stress in a relationship that uh, it's just two people trying to feel as safe as they can and maybe we might do that in different ways but if you can sort of keep an eye on empathising with what might be going on for them and, again, frank frank discussions sort of really help with that. Yeah, but it tends to stop this sort of gridlocking argument. 
I think that empathy piece is massive, isn't it? Because often we can get caught up in our own heads and think, you know, poor me. I mean, I, I speak on behalf of myself when I say <laughs> that, you know, yet when you haven't slept for weeks and you're sitting there and, you you know, you're changing another nappy and you're just thinking, I can't believe this is my life and toddlers screaming in the corner and baby screaming and it's just hectic. And then you think about your partner at work and you're like, damn you. <laughs> but, um, but then, you know, there's that, you, I guess one thing that I realized was, yes, my life has changed. And again, temporarily, like I'll, I went back to work after baby number one, I'll go back to work after baby number two. It's not like, this is just, that's step one, I think actually recognizing that this is a moment in time and it will pass. Um, and also trying to, you know, enjoy the, yeah. the beautiful moments yeah. within that experience. However, the other thing that I, I sort of learned, particularly when we had Noah, our firstborn was, Actually, although I thought Jules's life hadn't really changed nearly as much as mine, which, you know, fair, it hadn't because, um, but it had changed a lot. And this is one thing when we sat down and had a frank conversation, he said, Leonie, I get home from work and where I usually would, we'd have dinner, chill on the couch, have discussions, you know, feel like, you know, connected, you know, I'm coming home and, you know, often I'm home just in time for bath time. I'm with the kids, I'm, you know, and then the house is a mess. So I'm trying to help you clean. And then, you know, and then we fall into a heap on the couch and then we go to sleep. Like, and so of course my life has changed too. And this isn't like me happy go lucky skipping on rainbows and you being, you know, poor mum at home who really wants to be at work. But then when you're at work, you're guilty that you're at work and you want to be hot and, you know, yeah. and it's that whole mum guilt factor mm, as well that we experience yeah. oh. as mums and just the cocktail of emotions with everything <laughs> that we come across really. Yeah. But, you know, and I, think that was a really valid, you know, thing that I just hadn't even considered how much the man's life really does change and to be sort of empathetic towards that change as well. Absolutely. I mean, it it can be easier said than done, as you say, when you're feeling exhausted and overwhelmed with, you know, all the tasks. But um, I think that's, that's so important. There's no conflict that can ever really be um, worked through without that level of empathy. And, you know, if you've got two partners who are trying to hold it together and not show any vulnerability and we're only trying to show our shiny sides, it's just not going to, to work in terms of, you know, emotional intimacy. So, um, it's important to have cracks and (laughs) to not be ashamed of that and, and to be able to talk about that with each other because, yeah, that's what that's what gets you through the extremely enormously difficult task of of parenthood, I think. Um yeah. Absolutely. One of the other challenges is that often, you know, before when you could like, you know, you might have an argument, but then you could be intimate and it's fine and you slept all night and you wake up the next morning and you're happy as Larry. And now, I mean, the physical touch part with the, particularly with the new mum, and I find with myself, even just with like breastfeeding and stuff, I'm just so maxed out by physical touch that often, you know, the last thing I want to do at the end of a day is be like all huggy with my husband. (laughs) And to be fair, like I, you know, I will be because I make a conscious effort to do so it's certainly not something that just happens for me and I'm you know so into you know being all huggy where whereas previously I would have been right so I guess you also it's almost like prior to having a child you almost put that fire out by the physical touch piece as well um Mm -hmm. you know whatever argument you had you know you reconnect physically as well and you can put it to bed sort of thing whereas now it's like god I have to I have to like you know be like into that too and often that can be quite challenging um Mm -hmm. so how do we sort of navigate that that massive change as well. Mm, absolutely. It's an interesting one because I think there's there's very different viewpoints from different relationship therapy ideas. Um, there are some theorists who say that, you know, you should kind of encourage yourself to be physically intimate even if you don't feel like it because the longer the gap in between, um, the more that chasm seems to grow. I mean, from from my perspective, I think there's a danger if if we're talking about sexual intimacy in sort of just going through the motions because I think that that can really, um, you know, sort of 
numb you out more if, if it's just another thing on, on the list of things to do, like a chore. Mm. Um, I think it needs to feel authentic. And I guess what I point out to a lot of couples is that physical intimacy doesn't always have to be um, ending up in sexual intimacy. It might be things like, you know, a back scratch or a cuddle or something that just involves that closeness. And sometimes um, that is a little easier to kind of um, get on board with, I guess, um, when one's feeling exhausted and tapped out. Um, I think that there's a relationship theorist called Harriet Lerner and she's, I'm going to misquote her, but um, she she says in one of her books something along the lines of, um, men, if you, if you want to seduce your wife, try this erotic tip, do some housework. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is the kind of foreplay that is That's required awesome. in this, um, these sorts of situations. So I think generally if the emotional intimacy is taken care of, the, the sexual intimacy will follow too. And I think it's really important also for for women to remember that, you know, not to stereotype, but as women might tend towards wanting more emotional intimacy, men really often experience that closeness through the physical touch. Um, and as you alluded to, there's there are really, there can be strong feelings of exclusion uh, for the, the male partner who, you know, isn't involved in the breastfeeding you know, there is that really strong bond often between newborn and mother and um, he can sort of feel like he's been elbowed out in a way. Um, so it is, it's a really tough thing um, balancing that, maintaining your connection um, whilst, you know, being true to yourself and not trying to be superwoman and, you know, superwoman in the bedroom as well. Um, I think yeah, the more support you can get so that you can have time together, just the two of you is obviously really helpful. Um, but also just even when people are not feeling um, sexually enticed to be able to just talk about that and, um, you know, that it's not a permanent state of being, that it's it's very much situational and, um, you know, taking the pressure off a little bit. And as you said, you know, it, you know, even starting with the smaller gestures and things like that, that it, you don't have to leap straight into, you know, the end game necessarily. Um, it no. might be more of a build up for some people. Yeah, and there's so much variability as well in terms of uh, just from a, a female perspective, um, after the birth of a first child, in terms of um, averages for returning to sexual intimacy, um, it's kind of a three-way split between, you know, after three months, after six months, after 12 months. So there's there's really a lot of variability as to when um, people feel ready. I think the body goes through a lot of trauma and that does need to be honoured. Um, but I think, yeah, there needs to be um, kept in mind the other partner's point of view of perhaps feeling a little cast aside as well and, um, you know, holding both those needs in mind and and talking about it you know it really seems as though as you said from the start it's yes there are these challenges but the more vulnerable and the more you know you can communicate um the the better off essentially you'll you'll be because it's not just this silent resentment building and no one's mentioning it and then bang Mm. it explodes yeah and when that stuff builds up for a a long period of time, it can almost lead to what we refer to as an attachment injury, which is um, this real sense of betrayal. Like there was this seminal moment in a person's life where their partner really let them down and, you know, they hold on to it for decades. And, you know, this kind of stuff can really segregate a couple. So, um, I think, yeah, better out than in when it comes to um, to discussions and sometimes we do need to schedule them. Obviously midnight, you know, waking with the baby is probably not the best time to have a heart. To heart. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you yeah. would see, I'm sure, with um, different clients and even just over the years, the ones that have come to you early for, you know, marital sort of advice and support versus the ones that have come to you as the last straw 
Talk to me about the difference. I know it sounds obvious difference in dynamic would be one would be a lot more dire than the other, but I'm just curious just for perspective for us as mums as well to to sort of understand um, why it is so important to sort of be tackling these things when they're just little seeds of complications versus later on down the track. Yeah. I mean, every couple is, is really, really different. So it's hard to kind of summarize you know, couples who've come early versus, you know, further on down the track. But I guess, you know, if I had to make some comments, I guess um, a lot of the time you'll find that in couples that have let things go for too long, whether that be years, decades, whatever, um, there's there's not so many arguments. They'll often come in and say, oh, we never argue. You know, there's not much sexual intimacy and there's not much emotional intimacy. So, um, I think if a couple says they never argue, it's, it's concerning because it probably means they're not communicating. Um, and that maybe they have turned away from each other. Um, so things can actually look a lot smoother in a couple that's having, you know, more long-term challenges than a couple who might've just hit a bumpy patch and, you know, they're at each other's throats in the session, but at least things Mm. are kind of being talked about. You know, there is variability, but I think it's when things too much get swept under the rug, we start to have the belief that, well, I can't mention that now because that's too big a conversation and it's overwhelming and the wall is too thick. So, it becomes, it's almost like your hands are tied behind your back. Whereas, yeah, if you start with the very first thing that's bothering you, um, you're just talking about that thing, you know, and it's easier to sort of stay calm, I think, too. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Another big piece for a lot of um, couples is the financial strain um, of having children to now look after, not even look after, but, you know, pay for, et cetera. Kids certainly aren't cheap. And even if you have budgeted and you have some sort of an idea prior to falling pregnant and you try to be as prepared as possible, um, I'm sure the statistics are probably pretty high on the fact that money can often be a huge challenge um, for for relationships. So Mm. uh, I guess I'm just interested in maybe the best approach um, around that sort of financial strain, if that is coming up in your relationship for whatever reason, um, again, how to maybe best navigate that specifically. Yeah, I mean, um, it's certainly a, a significant stressor that couples can have conflicts about at any any stage of a relationship, not only with with having children. I think planning is obviously your friend there and, and realistic expectations. Different couples prefer to manage finances in, in lots of different ways and there's no right or wrong way, whether you have a shared pot or you have your own accounts and, you know, whether it's 50-50 split no matter what or whether it's um, dependent on how much people are earning. I think there really is no specific way that, that works better than the other. It's more personal to the couple. I think you know, perhaps one of the things that is really triggered by the financial strain of having children is this notion of dependency, particularly if you have been a woman who works full-time in her career and then all of a sudden you don't have your own income and you're also in a role that you're not practised at. You might have known your career like the back of your hand but all of a sudden everything's new and you might feel quite incompetent and then to feel dependent on what your husband's bringing home or what your partner's bringing home can be really, really challenging. So, I mean, I'm sorry to be repetitive, but communicating about that's obviously really important if there's some feelings coming up, um, you know, and and by the same token, I guess the, the breadwinner could feel resentful too if they feel like um, there, there's not a lot of connection in the relationship because everyone's a bit sleep deprived and they feel like they're, the workhorse to, you know, bring resources home, um, that can create conflict as well. Um, can also create differences in power structure in the relationship that might not have been there before. There really is no easy solution to these things. I mean, um, and it's, it's short of being enormously wealthy and, um, you know, not, not having a care in the world. I think, um, these are things that probably all couples, really have to squabble with and and, um, try and work their way through. Um, I think lowering expectations in terms of 
the way that we might have been able to live before baby um, and what what lifestyle is going to be like when baby comes along is is really significant. It sounds obvious, but it's not always <laughs> so obvious in practice. So I think, um, yeah. That, yeah, no, that makes sense. And I think one thing that you just sort of um, touched on there, it's just, it's so true, isn't it? The fact that, you know, we may have been a career woman bringing out, you know, in own income to the table, feeling so well versed at what we do, feeling as though people relied on us and that we, you know, it would work so hard to get to that position. And I know certainly for myself, once I had Noah, I was kind of like, I don't know what I'm doing. And it's probably that feeling of incompetence that also kind of made me feel like, oh, I'd probably rather be at work. And it's not because I don't love my child, but it's almost like I want to feel valid and worthy in myself. And I feel worthy because I tie my worth to my job or to my, these external things. Yeah. And so and it tends confident. to take a bit of time. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's, yeah. um, it's a really big shift, you know, um, it's, and, and then I guess when mums do go back to work, um, there's this sense of wanting it to feel like it did and, perhaps you can relate, um, you know, going back after your first, but um, it, it's never quite the same in a way because, it, you know, a piece of your mind is is with your child as well. Um, and so this ability to be tunnel vision on career, it, it's a real challenge, I think, the adjustment that a lot of women and some stay-at-home dads, of course, I shouldn't typecast, um, have to experience with sort of dialing down work and then dialing back up again is quite, um, yeah, psychologically challenging. Oh, absolutely. I know mm-hmm. that when I went back I was thinking, oh, no, now I'm missing all that time with Noah, like it's just so messed up sometimes. (laughs) It's just like, I'm here. You wanted to work. You're at work now. So you should be, you know, elated that you're here. And then, but, oh, I wonder what Noah's doing. And, oh, what if he does something for the first time? And I miss that. And, oh, you know, I'm a bit guilty now. And maybe I should go over there. And then you go over and you're with your child and you're like, oh, I feel a bit guilty. I've got a lot of emails to answer. You know, it's just that, like the The pendulum just swings. Yeah. Yeah. It, um, so how do we as, as new mothers build, I guess, resi- resilience, build sort of a, a bit of a, 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 find a way to feel more grounded, um, particularly during this time? Is it something that I know for myself, I know over time I've, you know, I've had kids now for two years. It's not a huge amount of time, but certainly I feel more grounded than I did two months in, you know? So is it just a time thing or, you know, are there other things that we could be mindful of to try and help ground us? Yeah, I think time's certainly on your side as with most things. Um, But I think, you know, when it comes to resilience, often it's counterintuitive, but it's, it's really... I don't want to say being kind to yourself because that's just such a therapisty thing to say, but um, not to be cliche, but um, but really having realistic expectations that it's going to feel wobbly and that it's a process and that a lot of it is trial and error, um, like all significant things in life and that we're just not going to feel together. I think if you can give yourself permission to struggle you can struggle through with a lot more and you can persevere. It's it's when we have those really high expectations that we ought to be doing it right and we ought to just get it and there's something wrong with us if we don't. Um, and I think there's a lot of that in motherhood. Um, a lot of the, you know, the cliches that you hear, oh, women have been doing it since the beginning of time. <laughs> it just comes naturally and uh, no. <laughs> Um, so I think, yeah, those realistic expectations and just giving yourself permission to, to muddle through, um, is what really enables people to persevere because, um, you know, you, it, it's just not so harsh or experience then if you don't feel like you're failing at every turn because you're struggling. Uh, and you're, you're not, 
you know, meeting up to that perfectionism that you, you know, may uphold. I know that like, that's one of the reasons why I started this podcast, because I thought the more we as mums talk about our experiences, the more we speak to, you know, experts in the field in in these different areas, the more it sort of brings to light that, yeah, it is a challenging time and we're all going through it and you're not alone and it normalizes it for us. And um, I certainly have felt, yeah, much sort of more, I don't know, it's not that if you know someone else is going through a hard time, you then feel great about yourself or anything like that. It just makes it feel like when you are going through that experience that you're, yeah, essentially not alone in that and that um, it is a normal thing. And I feel as though I was very ill-prepared prior to being a mother. I just sort of, you know, to be honest, I saw like Instagram with the fabulous mums there, like all painted up with the child just as the accessory. And I'm like, oh yeah, I could do that. I mean, God, how hard could that be? So cute. Yeah, but (laughs) so cute. So like happy days. And then it, you know, the reality of the situation comes into play. So that's why I'm trying to be as authentic. And I'm asking, I guess, the more hard hitting questions about the struggles, because Mm. I, I, you know, I think it's important that we talk about this um, and prepare new mums and, you know, make current mums feel less alone and all of those things. So absolutely, because, you know, you cannot um, sort of be everything to your child. A mother needs a lot of support around her and actually there's a lot of evidence that a lot of postnatal reactions, for example, are are equally about the level of support that's around a woman and how much she feels like she can talk about how difficult this all is. So, um, you know, it's, it's just so important not to feel like you have to be this perfect homemaker. Um, I'm not sure that it exists. Um, yeah. so yeah. And if, if, if you can be authentic in your own skin, that's actually giving your child, um, you know, such a great start in terms of emotional development because they'll feel like they can too, you know. Mm, um, they're like little sponges, aren't yeah. they? They can sort of sense what's going on around them. Yeah, yeah. And mummy and daddy don't need to be perfect all the time. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Any final words of advice to Ooh. our mums? <laughs> I guess I'd, I'd really reiterate um, the importance of just not kind of putting the standards too high, not being perfectionistic, speaking up about things you feel vulnerable about, particularly with your partner, um, you know, and just really making the, that time for those discussions, even with everything else that's on the to-do list. It's just so important to have those moments of connection because it's, it's uh, you know, one of the most difficult adjustments in, in life. So um, really understandable that one needs extra supports and is not going to be at their most efficient, you know. Um, so, yeah, I guess that would be the, the main take-homes, I would say. Love it. No, that's great. I got so much out of this conversation. So thanks so much, Amber. Just finally, where can people find more about you and your work? Okay. Well, I've got a, I've got a website. It's uh, www.nextwavepsychology.com.au. Um, that, that's got a bit of a description about me and the way I work uh, and where I work from also. Perfect. I'll pop that in the episode notes as well. Thanks again, Amber. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, leave us a review and give us five stars if you're feeling fancy. By subscribing to the podcast, every new episode will drop into your podcast library each week. Subscribing is also such an essential way for people to find us and to enable us to grow. Want to be part of the Mum Life community? Join our Facebook group and follow us on Instagram at Mum Life Podcast. Until next time, keep living your best mum life. <laughs>